This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. I'm going to jump in. This lecture is called Burned But Not Consumed, and I think the original subtitle was Thinking Through Divine Sovereignty and Human Action. Uh, but I, I just wanted to actually, uh, since I'm giving the lecture, I thought actually more appropriately would be just thinking through divine and human action, or divine action and human action, uh, and really wondering about the question, do these things inadvertently cancel each other out? Um, discussions like these can get a little abstract and a little heady rather quickly, and I really want to avoid any unnecessary or unhelpful abstraction tonight, but I'm going to take a risk. Uh, we, we might get a little more theological than sometimes do because I think this matter of how God works or acts in the world and how humans act in the world deserves some good reflection. And perhaps we can employ some theology in order to help us live well in the world we find ourselves in the places we find ourselves in it. And where I see the rub of this, this common enough assumption that maybe our actions cancel out God's actions or God's actions sort of do away with our actions, one of us acts or the other acts, that's the, the thing I want to get at uh, tonight. One of us gets stuff done. It's either us or it's God. And while Christians might not be quick to like audibly affirm that or say that out loud, that it's either up to us to get stuff done or God's going to get stuff done. I think we unintentionally fall into patterns uh, of thinking, praying, and acting that might presume such a setup. It's us or it's God. And the poles we can tend toward are an unhealthy, sort of unresting activism where the end results are in our hands. And the other side is a life of sort of spiritual, social, and cultural passivity waiting for God or perhaps someone else that God might send to show up and take care of things. And again, I just want to be clear, I don't actually hear many Christians, many thoughtful Christians, putting these things in such stark contrast, either or. Um, But as people who confess, uh, see that in the scriptures, God is active in this world. He acts. But God has also given us work to do in this world, and we are treated in the scriptures as morally responsible creatures. How do we find these things uh, together? How do we find these things working together? And it's, I think it's natural for us to sort of self-sort or lean to one side or the other, maybe through different seasons in our life uh, or at different points. So whether it's the quest of finding a spouse, fighting climate change, breaking a cycle of unwanted behavior, confronting systemic racism, navigating uh, meds and mental health. So we make our way through a big world. We tend to fall in either God's going to show up and do something or it's up to us to do something. Uh, 
And my hunch is that part of the reason why is because we, again, we tend to sometimes think or at least act or pray or behave in a way, whether or not we would consciously admit this, is different, that God's, God's action in the world cancels out or does away with human action. Or human action sometimes cancels out God's action. That it's a zero-sum sort of game. Uh, and this me-or-God approach to human action and divine action uh, gets in, in some writing the kind of uh, fancy, fancy name as competitive agency. Competitive agency. So that's what we're going to be talking about about that uh, tonight. So I just want to think together briefly. Um, uh, let's say Hannah and I, uh, two creatures that reside on the same plane of existence. We take up space. We move through time. We are tasked with moving couches. Couches in this room are often need to be moved. If you only come here on Friday nights, this is the only time in the week besides Saturday morning before they get put back that the couches are like this. But couches get moved at least Fridays, uh, Mondays, sometimes Wednesdays. Uh, they get moved a lot around here. But if Hannah and I are going to move the couch, let's say I lift 40% of the couch. That means there's how much left for Hannah to move? 60% left. And if, which, and if I sort of lose my balance and give up and drop 10 more percent, she has to make up for that 10% for us to move it. So to move the couch, it's either me or Hannah, right? We can work together, but we're, we're doing this action together. And if I was able to move a couch on my own, which most of these couches I can move on my own, there's one or two of them that I struggle with, I do it 100%. That's 100% me. And if Hannah is moving a couch on her own, it's 100% her. And if she doesn't, she doesn't need me. So this way of acting, competitive agency, uh, is just part of what it means to be a creature engaging well or sometimes not so well with other creatures. We all live within the natural constraints of taking up time and moving through space. And so far, I think so good. Maybe, maybe there's, maybe it's not, but, uh, I just think that's part of, part of how our existence is. But if we reflexively and without much sort of theological reflection on kind of the zero sum, me or Hannah moving the couch, this sort of approach to God and us, to our acting, God's acting to get something done in this world is it, it will get us into some trouble. It will lead to some unhelpful places. We naturally find ourselves thinking like this. If I do 80% of whatever, God will take care of the last 20%. Or more commonly, I'll do all the couch lifting because God is probably doing something more important somewhere else. Or I'm not going to move the couch at all. I'm going to wait for God to come and move this couch, even though I want the couch moved somewhere else in the room. So part of why I think uh, this competitive agency approach to things, this either-or, unleashes havoc on our life is, uh, I don't think it really does justice to how the Bible presents the matters, how God acts and how people act. And admittedly, the Bible is a much more interesting book than a book or a talk that would use a term like competitive agency. That's not something we find in there. It doesn't employ neat and tidy categories that theology and philosophy sometimes do. 
But the Bible speaks of humans acting and God acting. Uh, and sometimes it's hard to tell exactly who's doing which part of the moving of the couch, so to say. So I want to read a few select passages in order to ask the, the, the ultimate goal of, what we're, of, what, of what's getting done, whatever sort of um, moving of the couch we could say that's about to happen. Who's acting? Who's employing agency? Is it divine agency? Is it human agency? Is it maybe both? Um, so I'm going to start. I'm going to have some folks read as well. But I'm going to start by reading Isaiah uh, 50, or, sorry, 65. You don't need to follow along. I'm going to read for a little while. Uh, this is coming at the end. I'm reading verses 17 to 25. I'm going to skip a couple sections. Not all of Isaiah is talking about the future. Um, not all of prophetic literature is, is sort of like uh, like forecasting. Some of it is speaking into the, the present moment. But this is very much speaking about where God is going to take the world. And if you're all familiar with the book of Revelation, uh, where John speaks about a new heavens and new earth, he gets that idea from Isaiah. So I'm going to read a little bit from Isaiah here. asking you to pay attention to who, who's, who's doing the acting here, who's working, who's exercising agency. So here we go. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. This is the Lord speaking through the voice of Isaiah. But then he goes on to describe what's going on there. He says, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. Where they are yet speaking, I will hear. And then this is a famous uh, line. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be like the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So we have two there. Then now, jump into the New Testament. There's Philippians 2, which Sarah is going to read to us. Uh, give me Ephesians. <coughs> oh, which I should have given you Philippians 2. <laughs> um. uh, oh, no. Yeah, okay. Did I give you Philippians? All right. Let the record show. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And now I have, I'm gonna have two folks read two different renditions of Psalm 27, 8. So Jennifer's reading first from the ESV. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. And Kerrigan is gonna read in the NIV. 
My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. So the Lord says something in one translation. My heart says something in the other translation. And from what I could gather from uh, some other people who are, are better equipped at Hebrew, a more literal translation, which shows why you, you kind of have both acting, is would be something like, on your behalf, my heart said, seek my face. So who's acting? Who's speaking there? My heart or the Lord? So as we move forward, this is where I want us to go tonight. Um, I want to think through these matters of how God's acting and human acting can can relate in a way that don't cancel each other out, um, as though God just overwhelms uh, a person when they're acting, or God's completely absent, and it's up for them to act. And so I just want to look at some common instances of this competitive agency. I want to then have uh, a section followed that by a section like, it might be helpful for us to, to revisit some older categories in theology of transcendence and imminence to remind ourselves that God is not a thing. And then I just want to um, present sort of the burning bush. And I said an active passivity there. I sort of dropped some of that, but it can come up. It's actually, I feel like it flows very naturally into a tradition of articulating the spiritual life from the Schaefers as one that's both active and passive uh, at the same time. So we're going to just jump right in uh, to matters of competitive agency. And I just want to, instead of unpacking this, I just want to present some examples that I've seen or experienced. So maybe you've heard a sermon or someone sing a song that they wrote or seen a piece of art that they've made and you've gone up to them and you've said, that was really wonderful. And I feel like the Lord spoke to me something through it, maybe a word of encouragement, a word of conviction, but it was a very, very timely thing for me. So thank you for how you said that. And they respond piously, and I'm not mocking them here, piously and honestly, and they say something like, oh, it wasn't me. It's all the Lord. And you just think to yourself, like, well, you did some work this week, uh, or you did some work in crafting this song. Like, you put some effort in. I heard your voice up there. Like, I, I don't, I don't think it was just all the Lord, as though you weren't there at all, as though you were a phantom. Um, and so that's like a common instance we see in the church, but sometimes outside of the church. And I think some of this feeds into it, and this is maybe more meta, more big picture, is a way we sort of tell the story of the modern world. So one uh, example of this comes from a professor at Harvard who I think is just an icon of great hair for men everywhere, a guy named Steven Pinker. I mean, and it, you, if you look at, if you look at, I, I, we have gotten so many, he has such amazing curly hair. I mostly put this picture up because I just wanted to show uh, the picture. But in, in this book of his that I haven't read, uh, Full Confession, called en- Enlightenment Now, the case for reason, science, humanism, and progress. He tells the story, the modern, the world of the modern story, <coughs> like this. And this is a quote from him. Ever creative Homo sapiens had long fought back against disease with quackery such as prayer. But starting in the late 18th century with the invention of vaccination, and accel- accelerating in the 19th century with the acceptance of germ theory of disease the tide of the battle began to turn. Hand-washing, midwifery, mosquito control, and especially the protection of drinking water by public sewage 
and chlorinated tap water would come to save billions of lives. So on the one hand, we have something like the quackery of prayer. Uh, that is, it's all up to God. At least oh, this is how Pinker is presenting it, I, I think, um, in, in this instance. And on the other, we have human, human action, human agency. We have germ theory, mosquito control, chlorinated tap water. Uh, and, and on his thing, uh, there's just sort of two ways to deal with this. We, we leave it up to God, the quackery of prayer, or we take matters into our own hands, uh, which is what happened in the late 18th century on. And these, th- that way really has nothing necessarily to do with God. In fact, it's in the way the story is told, it's leaving God behind. And so that's a second example. And there's, um, there's other ways that, and I, I do think whether or not we read someone like Steven Pinker or the countless other genealogies of the modern world, sort of this sense that uh, there was a time where people prayed, but now we get stuff done through technology, through science. It's very much in the air. It's, it's, maybe it's in that chlorinated water that's uh, saved billions of the lives. And I think we don't just read it out there. Like, I know I, uh, I have these same sort of assumptions that I have in my head. I hear in my own prayers or the prayers of other people. I get stuck, and I cry out, and I ask God to change something right now to do something for me. And I wait pretty passively for a miracle to come or some sort of breakthrough. I remember uh, my student term here at Labrie uh, using my time very well listening to a series of lectures by Jim Paul, who works at the English Labrie on decision-making and the will of God. I commend them to everybody. But he makes this comment kind of passive, like not passively, but like on the side, um, he says there's all these people like standing around waiting uh, for God to give them the right sort of spouse. And I just want to tell them, instead of just waiting for the right spouse, you could be becoming the sort of person who could have a successful marriage. Like you could be gaining in those virtues of love, of kindness, of long-suffering. Anyway, and just that way of framing it, I just felt... I mean, I was I was married at the time. I was very happily married. But that way of like seeing just waiting or... Um, anyway... Uh, Hopefully that made sense. But the final example I have of this competitive agency, and sorry, just to be clear, Jim is not using competitive agency there. Jim is showing us a very different way. Um, But the final example comes from a comedian, a Scottish comedian, who I, um, I have to confess, I don't actually find him terribly funny um, uh, in this And that's more like his delivery and his tone, like his style is just, it's not the sort of stand-up I connect with. But he just perfectly and humorously uh, illustrates this either-or. And I'm sympathetic with him because I would imagine he's heard this sort of simplistic, it's all God or it's all us type of things and sees how that doesn't do justice. Uh, to some of, of, of our human experience. So I'm going to play a part of it. I'm going to try to cut it off uh, not long after he um, says it. But. Uh, my mom's had four kids. Uh, you can tell that she loves us all the same, but after the first two, you know, the magic kind of went. She always goes on about how she was blessed with me, and she was gifted with my sister. Then she had my brother, and she'll always remember the day that she was diagnosed with the other one. 
one of the hardest things about being a parent must be Christmas morning when you spend all this time, money, and effort making this day so magical, and then you look down at your child with those beautiful blue eyes that you hope resemble yours, and they spend the whole day thanking Santa. You know that disappointment that parents feel in that moment? That's exactly how doctors feel whenever you thank God. <laughs> Mr. Darcy, we are delighted to announce that your cancer has gone into remission. Oh, oh, thank the Lord. <laughs> oh, no, sorry, it's just funny. I just couldn't see his name anywhere on this chart. Uh... <laughs> See, my name around the job there, Dr. Michaels. So we do two, two and a half months of chemotherapy. You're welcome, by the way. <laughs> Dr. Connors over there, she spent six hours trying to cheer out your lung. Uh, got the names of all the way staff, all the nurse staff here. Can't seem to find the Lord's name. <laughs> yes, but, 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 but the Lord sent you. <laughs> I don't think he did. He certainly didn't chip in for that medical degree. <laughs> I might have actually cut it off a moment early, but just anyway, but you can, on your own time, uh, Daniel Sloss, um, back to Steven Pinker's hair, oop, um, I mean, if I'm, if I'm honest, I, I, uh, what he says, uh, with a sharp edge, but, but jokingly, I heard more, I've heard more or less people say the same thing, uh, as though they hadn't just spent time in a hospital, they hadn't been operated on by a doctor, or saved by certain medical technologies. Uh, and I'm, I, yeah, there's a, there's a sort of harsh, there's a, there's a little bitter edge, I think, uh, that you could pick up on, um, to his comedy, but I'm sympathetic to it, if those are our options. Uh, if that's, if that's the way it's gonna work. Um, but, uh, I don't think it is. But New York Times columnist, uh, mother of three, Anglican priest, and author, uh, Tish Harrison Warren. I, I, I love this book. This is such a great book. Um, she says in her, this really excellent book, Prayer in the Night, uh, she says this, with this sort of competitive agency, God can get all the blame and none of the credit. He's responsible for cancer, tsunamis, and car accidents, while we deserve all the thanks for the cure, the recovery, and the safety engineering. It also, I think, just goes without saying that in this sort of setup, the reverse can be true. God can get all the credit, while human effort, ingenuity, style, all human agency, any bit of it, just gets left out of the equation. Uh, Because it's all the Lord. Tish goes on, and she says this. This is a longer quote. Um, The assumption of competitive agency affects all of us. We are waiting for God to make a breakthrough, for God to miraculously fix us. God may be a miracle worker, but he's a distant one, showing up rarely and leaving the daily maintenance of the world to us. So we can falsely pit prayer and work against each other, as if one makes the other unnecessary. Within a competitive agency, we tend to understand accomplishments as either our work or God's work, but never both. 
We've come to subtly believe that our agency is therefore in competition with God's agency. This way of understanding the world would have been unimaginable for most of human history. God's work was neither understood as separate from nor in competition with our own. It was the very life from which all fruitful work flows. I uh, bolded and italicized that last line because I think it's lovely. And it's it's theologically rich and deserves some wondering at, to be honest. And we sang an older hymn here on Monday morning that admittedly I requested. um, And the couches were arranged differently at that time. But the hymn is Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. A hymn that's based off of Paul's uh, first letter to Timothy. Some lines in the beginning and the end. And it has a line that puts things similarly to what Tish says here, um, very beautifully. So it says this, it says, To all life thou giveth, givest, both great and small. In all life thou livest, the true life of all. It's quite a rich thought, actually. I, what I think the writer of this hymn, a guy named Walter C. Smith, is getting at, is that God is the source of all life. In all life, uh, or what's the line? Uh, to all life thou givest. God has life within himself. God isn't dependent. God gives life to anything that, that has life. Um, uh, and so some of the, the word here for this is transcendent. God is other than, the, than what is not God, creation. But at the same time, God is not far off. God is not uninvolved in the going on, the nitty-gritty of this life. In fact, he is intimately involved. The word here is imminent. And the way that Smith puts it, in all life thou livest, the true life of all. This hymn, uh, it poetically and memorably, uh, presents a non-competitive agency. It it presents these two theological truths as though they're compatible. They work together. Uh, That God is transcendent and he is imminent. That God is the maker of the world. He's not a part of this creation, but he is present within it. This is something uh, that much of the Christian tradition has been able to hold together, but admittedly can be hard for us. Transcendence and imminence, not just because they're bigger words, um, but they're difficult concepts to bring together. Um, and I want to spend a little bit of time moving into that in this section, talking about how God is not a thing. So talking about transcendence and imminence, these characteristics of God. And so Christians are going to confess two things about God that are sometimes hard to hold together. Uh, as Paul writes in First Timothy, uh, God gives life to all things. He is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. This is a pretty um, pretty rich description of God's otherness um, in this sense. But the same person in the scriptures, Paul, is recorded in the book of Acts by telling us that God is not far from us. In fact, it's in him, in God, that we live and move and have our being. God is present. God is intimately aware. Um, 
that is imminent. Uh, and I think kind of getting the relationship between these two characteristics of how God's, God relates to the world or is very different than the world can help us think through divine action and human action, how those things can relate. So otherness and intimacy, transcendence and imminence. So it's understandable how these claims can exist in some tension. Uh, There's a lot of tension in my mind. In the modern era, lots of philosophers and lots of theologians have said they're incomplete, or they're incompatible, they're incoherent. You have to choose one or the other. And this is um, a chart that I did not make. Um, But I think it shows well that... um, And so this chart actually is a summary of an incredibly dense uh, book that I also wasn't able to finish um, called God and Creation and Christian Theology by Catherine Tanner. Um, I I don't think you have to finish it to get the gist of it. It was a PhD, so it's just... um, They tell you what they're going to say, then they say it, then they say it again. Anyway. um, But one of the things that Tanner is after is that we frame... Transcendence and imminence in this either or, she uses contrastive metaphysics, which I, I don't want to use that other than just to quote her and say that it's on there. Um, but either or, it's this either or, we frame it contrastively. So the more one thinks of God as transcendent, the further away you are from imminent. Like the, like the more God is other, the less he's present, and it tends towards this what would be called a deistic view of God, like God's sort of an absentee parent. He's he's been around. He he made things, but he's off doing something else, somewhere else. That's usually more important. And in this sentence, what it means that God is transcendent just means he's distant. He's really big, and he's really far away. But on this sort of framing uh, of transcendence and imminence. Uh, the other the other problem is it can go the other way. The more imminent God is, the more we can just sort of associate God or identify God with creation itself, uh, which might not be a big temptation to many people in this room at the moment, but there are schools of thought um, uh, like, like open theism or panentheism or process theology, and if you don't know what those things are, you're doing very well in life, and um, don't worry about it. But other move, theological movements that, yeah, just see, let, don't really make space for God's otherness. He's just a thing like we're a thing. He's just a particular part of the creation. And God sort of becomes whoever God is along with us as we're uh, becoming uh, ourselves. So this model, though, what, what, what Tanner is after in, in her book um, is this way of thinking is not good. <laughs> and the way of framing this situation is not helpful. God's otherness, God's transcendence, she wants to be clear, is not a matter of distance. It's a matter of difference. Okay? That God is different from creation. It doesn't just mean that God is above us. God's greater than us. God's bigger than us. He's larger. Maybe he's the best or ideal version of some sort of creation. And there's there's these songs that we keep singing in church that don't always help this, especially little kids. I have this song in my head. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty. I think there's some truth in that. But transcendence doesn't mean God is as strong and big and mighty in the same way creatures are. 
He is the creator. He has all power within himself. So just to say that you're smaller than God and not as strong as God is certainly true, but it's not what makes us not God. God has existence in himself. As Paul said, he dwells in unapproachable light. There was a 6th century theologian um, uh, from Damascus named John of Damascus uh, who wrote that God is distant to us not by place, but by his nature. So God's distant not by place, but by nature. So God is God is just a different sort. God is not a thing in the way that we are things, that we're creatures. So if you take a moment and think about any two fruit, if you think about a lime, you think about an apple. A lime and an apple are different from one another. Uh, by nature, though, they're both fruit. And we can name how uh, how they're different from one another. One has um, skin that you would eat. One has skin that you would zest. One is sometimes red, sometimes green. The other is always green. Uh, one grows in one part of the world. Another grows in another part of the world. In fact, I've never seen a lime grow. But we're, differenti- we're differentiating between things that by nature are the same sort of things. This is not what we do when we differentiate God from creation. That's not the same sort of thing. We don't just say, well, he's bigger, uh, he's better, he's stronger. He is very different. Again, his existence is his own. God is not dependent on the created world. He's not limited by time or by space. And so I think that enables God, God to be both true because God is other, and because he's not limited by time and space, he actually, because he's transcendent, he can be imminent. He can be in all places present equally because he's not limited in the same way that we are when we move through our life or when we try to move couches in the library together. And again, I don't think anyone, very few Christians say things like this directly, but this sort of thought of making God sort of a bigger version or an ideal version of, of something within creation, I think that tendency of thought is common enough. And I think a healthy dose of transcendence, of, of realizing God is not a thing, uh, can help us remember God's relationships to the world is, is different. Um, and so if we want to think of a way that God relates to the world in a non-competitive way, in a way that doesn't just cancel out human action. We need some help because we're very spatially thinking. I think part of this chart is dealing with space, and that creates the tension and the impossibility of it. So I do want to present the burning bush or or, or kind of think through um, uh, the burning bush, but before I do, because I think there's something there for us, uh, this, this peculiar story of God encountering Moses. I, I want to briefly note uh, and, and highlight some of the insight of uh, a man named Jeremy Begbie, who has very different hair than Steven Pinker, but I want to say is very respectable. Um, he is a musician, and he is a theologian who works at Duke Divinity School. And if you want to know more about him, you should talk to Ben, because uh, Ben has read much more of him than I have. Um, but in this book of his... 
called A Peculiar Orthodoxy, Reflections on Theology and the Arts. Uh, in in, a, in a, a very dense, admittedly, I, I found it very difficult to track with at times, um, essay called A Room of One's Own. He speaks about how our overly spatial imagination gets us in trouble uh, in our theology when we're talking about someone, namely God, who is not bound by time or space. So Begbie points out that an object takes up space, it inhabits the three dimensions of our physical world, and so it means nothing else can take up that space. It cancels out whatever could possibly be in that space. It's contrastive. He notes how this causes problems in our theology because it becomes impossible to see how God and creation can either occupy the same sort of space or work towards the same sort of end without threatening each other's integrity. He calls this zero-sum theology. And instead, Begbie wonders... We want a different way to think about the ways of God with creation. We might benefit from looking to or listening to music. So I want to read a section on here. And um, I'm not as familiar with music theory. So this we can come back to this if um, in, in the question time. But he, he's making a... Well, I'll, I'll, just let it, I'll just read it. He says this. I play a note on a piano. The tone I hear fills the whole of my oral field, my heard space. It does not occupy a bounded location. It saturates our hearing. It's everywhere in that space. There's nothing outside it. No spatial zone where the sound is not. Then I play a second higher tone along with the first. This second sound fills the entirety of the same heard space. Yet I hear it as distinct irreducibly different. In this oral environment, two different entities, it would seem, can be in the same space at the same time. And they are not each in a place that we can describe as here rather than there. Each seem to be everywhere. Um, he, he keeps ref- kind of reflecting more and more on, on how music can actually... Reflecting on music can be very helpful for some of the theological conundrums or seemingly impossibilities we or incoherences we come up with. He actually engages quite a bit with Tanner uh, in the rest of that chapter. And uh, while I think it's not quite right um, to speak of a musical note having agency, uh, and certainly notes exist on the same ontological plane, uh, as we do, unlike God, when he relates to us. But perhaps Begbie gestures towards a way of thinking about action and being that move beyond the zero-sum contrastive model that so many of us are stuck with and can work with a view of God's transcendence, that his, his being other, his being different from us, actually is what enables him to be near and to be near in a way that doesn't cancel out our own agency, but in fact gives us agency in the first place. Paul says in Colossians 1 that he is before all things, and it is in him that all things hold together. So God is not just competing with our agency, he is giving us this. And by his being other, he can actually be closer to us than we are to ourselves. 
Augustine prays famously that line in his confessions. You are more closer to me than I am to myself. And so with some of this in mind, I want to move uh, to just a short reflection on um, uh, Moses' encounter with a burning bush. Uh, this is a well-known story uh, in, um, well, it's a significant story in the Bible, right, right after this encounter, or, or right after what we'll read from this encounter. Uh, God gives his name for, the, for his covenant name to a human for the first time. God shares something about him he had never done before. But I wonder if this particular image of a bush that is burning but is not being destroyed not being consumed in a way that sort of music can, two notes can take up the same sort of oral space. I wonder if it can offer us something of an image of how God and creatures can relate in a non-competitive manner. So, Matt, if you would stand and just read Exodus 3, 1 to 6. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see uh, this great sight, why this bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. Um, For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Thanks, Matt. So God speaks to Moses from within the burning bush. And, I mean, it's an amazing moment for for God just to reveal himself, uh, yet again, in, in a more intimate way to his creation. The transcendent one making it, not, you know, because transcendent, if God is transcendent, he doesn't have to necessarily come down and make himself apprehendable or communicable. Um, uh, but God has come to make himself known to Moses. But he does so through this peculiar and fascinating and unique uh, uh, image, reality. God has come to matter. He's come to his creation. And he set it alight from within. His presence is there, but his presence doesn't destroy the bush. It's burned. It's burning, but it's not consumed. It's not a competition. We might assume that his presence would just wipe it out, would just consume it. And there's plenty, actually, there's plenty of examples of God, God's presence, like in the temple or in the tabernacle, uh, consuming things. It's not as though uh, that doesn't happen. But the bush is filled with God's presence, and it is not wiped out. Burning with God's presence, with God's life, it is not consumed. It's not destroyed. God's presence here doesn't destroy and it doesn't negate the presence of the bush. God's presence is with the creation and the creation is literally, and I think figuratively, set aflame from within with God's own life. 
It's not destroyed. Normally, we can't have two creatures taking up the same space. If I lift 60% of the couch, Hannah has to do 40. Like, we live within certain natural uh, limitations as created beings. Um, and we exist on the same ontological plane. And we move through natural constraints of time and space. But God is not like that. God is different. God is transcendent. He is what gives life. He is the ground of life. He's the ground of being for all that exists. And I love this. I love, I'm still thinking, to be honest, about this image of being burned, yet not being overtaken, as sort of an image of what it's like when God comes to his creation and fills it with his presence and fills it with its life and lets it act. I'm going to return and give the final word, though, to my... I think we would be very good friends in real life. Um, Tish Harrison Warren. And this is actually her response to Steven Pinker's, uh, Steven Pinker's comment. But I think also just sort of weaves this together and speaks um, well about how do we think about God's action in the world and human action in the world. And I will, I'm actually, I'll just read Pinker's quote one more time just so it's, it's slightly fresh. And you can, you can again see the competitive, contrastive, uh, either or approach. Pinker says, ever creative Homo sapiens had long fought back against disease with quackery such as prayer. But starting in the late 18th century with the invention of vaccination and accelerating in the 19th century with acceptance of germ theory of disease, the tide, uh, the battle began to turn, the tide of the battle, battle began to turn. Hand washing, midwifery, mosquito control, and especially the protection of drinking water by public sewage and chlorinated tap water would come to save billions of lives. Now this is um, Tish. Pinker presumes that prayer and God himself dwell in some other dimension than hand-washing, germ theory, or sewers. Believer and unbeliever alike can slip into this way of thinking. We wall off prayer, whether we think it's quackery or not, from hard human work, acts of genius, leaps in technology, or bills becoming laws. One evening, I came downstairs and, to my surprise, found Jonathan, that's her husband, crying while reading, positively weeping over the kindness and generosity of God. But he wasn't reading the Bible or the church fathers. He was reading Pinker's Enlightenment Now. I began to laugh as my husband read about the billions of lives that have been saved through clean water and modern medical care. He saw the work of God in and through people's work. Stephen Pinker and Jonathan were looking at the same data but their stories about reality made them narrate that data in completely different ways. Where Pinker saw quackery, Jonathan saw glory. He was filled with wonder that God would usher such astonishing healing into this sad world and give men and women the privilege of participating in that work. This is my favorite line. The Christian story dares us to believe that the work of prayer is not so far away from the gift of sewers that hands lifted in prayer and the scientific accommodation of hand washing flow from a shared source. Our work of prayer participates in and propels our public work of restoration. 
So that is where I'm going to stop um, and uh, open it up for uh, discussion, um, question, and response. I have a lot of questions about all these matters um, myself, but um, yeah, you're also free to get more tea or yeah, just qu- yeah, Richard. Thanks for coming. Uh, if, we're, if we're going to uh, make a link between uh, God and sewers, we can think of Deuteronomy 23:12. I it was just I was just about to say that. No, I'm just kidding. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I don't know what that says. Deuteronomy 23:12 says roughly, "Use proper latrines in your camp." God's instruction to the Israelites. Nice. I like it. I like that you know that. <laughs> If I had to, like, you know, I know I don't know everyone in this room, so no offense, but if I had to guess if there was someone in this room who might know a verse like that, I would probably guess. <laughs> That's a compliment. That is a compliment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Were you going to say something, Marty? Yeah. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is from Proverbs, and I can never remember where it is, but it says, Do not humans plan their steps. Yeah. Plan their way, doesn't live in Boston either.
But again, it was, I, I actually often have experiences like that where there's been a lot of human agency, and then I see, oh my gosh, God directed our steps. Mm-hmm. Even though we made all sorts of decisions, spent a lot more time than we wanted to on the phone and <laughs> waiting on hold or whatever, mm-hmm. but God directed our steps. Yeah. Very encouraging. Yeah, Kathy. Just wondering what you think. Is there such a thing as coincidence? Is there such a thing as coincidence? Uh, I mean, I really don't know the answer to yeah. that, but it came up. Yeah. No. 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 It's a good. It's a legitimate question. I. Um, I mean, there's like so many things that I would be like, oh, such a coincidence. And like, but if then I was really pressed to be like, is this just a coincidence or um, is there something else? Yeah, I think I probably wouldn't. So, so I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, in our men's Bible study, we're going through uh, Nehemiah. And I preached through it previously, but what really struck me going through Nehemiah is you know, your lecture, with how Nehemiah prays all the way through to God. He's constantly praying short prayers, long prayers, and yet he's constantly with his own agency doing lots of things. He's mm-hmm. being a strong leader, he's extremely organized, he's resisting all this opposition to the work of God, um, and yet he basically says it was done because of God, it was done with God. Yeah. And just thinking like you were saying, well, how much of our human agency is then you know, equipped by God, victorious because of God, successful because of God, you know, and how much of our human, and even people maybe who don't realize that their human agency is because of God, Uh, but you know, he really gives God the credit and God the glory for the work that he had a lot of agency in accomplishing. Yeah. Uh Yeah. Yeah. There was, uh, I'm not uh, well read enough or particularly, like there's a um, there's a, a German theologian, a, a giant, whatever, this guy, Karl Barth. I haven't really read him. I've read a ton of people say stuff about him. I don't really know one way or the other. But I have read this, just you saying that, I have read this letter that he wrote to a young, um, sort of, um, what would in the, like, 40s, 50s liberal sort of German theologian who kept talking about building the kingdom and, like, we're going to build the kingdom and we're going to bring the kingdom to earth. And I, I can't remember exactly how he says it, but some of the effect of like the way like that you put of like we're bringing the kingdom or uh, like we're we're gonna make it like I don't want you to stop working, but I'm just afraid like I don't want you to stop the work you're doing. I'm just afraid you've missed the entire point of the Bible if you think you are going to make or bring the kingdom like on your own. And I think you should really reconsider. Like becoming a theologian, because <laughs> like, you've missed such a massive thing. Um, because it was that, like, yeah, it was just anyway. Just, sorry, I, I, I know that's sort of a rant. But you were talking about Nehemiah building, as well as praying, and and Bart's thing was Bart too when you were speaking, and in that he, you know, came out of liberal theology. But what he really emphasized too is the word of God and God's divine revelation, and kind of what you were saying, that really putting the emphasis upon God and what you know God had revealed, verse divinely versus you know human knowledge, human efforts, human wisdom. Yeah, and as long as they keep we keep working 
both sides, living in dependence on God and keep acting. Um, not, yeah, not just the, which is, I had it on the outline, but yeah, this phrase that shows up in Francis Schaeffer's, uh, this, it's more than a phrase, I think. It's, um, I mean, it's very central to his work in, in uh, his book, True Spirituality, but this idea of active passivity, that like our life is we are active and we, we work, especially in our spiritual life, in, in the world. I mean, he's talking about more in our, on our life of prayer and spiritual life, but we, 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 we <clears throat> we're active, but we're, we also have to somehow hold a, a position of being passive because we, we want to, one, let God lead us and we want to be open, not just so like, uh, you know, full speed ahead, getting stuff done that we, we can't even stop to hear, uh, what the Lord has for us. But yeah, anyway. Did you have your hand up, Peter? Or? Just the, the, from Nehemiah, uh, when he does say, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God for his service. Yeah. So there, there I think is sort of the, the glory, yeah. if you want to put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Can you have you been you've been here before? Is that or I just not for many years. Not for many years. Yet. What was your Walker. name? What what is it? Walker. Walker. Yeah. So at the very beginning of your talk, you mentioned that the Bible, being an interesting book, doesn't always use the uh, clear categories of philosophy or theology. You later, when you're describing uh, some sort of imaginable alternative to, <coughs> called it competitive authority. Competitive agency. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 You said that our actions or God actions may potentially coexist in a certain way. There was the analogy of the musical notes, but it also seemed suggested or implied that we may never know the exact mechanism uh, by which the two are reconciled. In fact, even if we could have some hint of it, it may be well beyond us on a metaphysical level to ever understand it. Where I'm going with this question is, do you think it is something that we could ever rationally grasp with our limited human ability to impose categories using language on reality and spiritual reality for us to ever understand what that mechanism is? Or is, or is it something that yeah. we will not be able to grasp and we can't grasp, but we just have to accept? That is a really, really good question. And, I mean, so I, I would want to say that... Um, <clears throat> um, Yes, um, but maybe like uh, just your language of like like grasp, like it gives you enough. I think our language can speak uh, sufficiently and truthfully and adequately about about God's character and about who who God is and about God's ways in the world. But I don't know if we could ever speak sort of comprehensively. Uh, like there's always, um, sometimes theologians talk about there's always an excess. Like there's always more, um, that, so I, there's a way I think that sometimes like, um, maybe, especially in, in Western culture, sort of post enlightenment, sort of scientific presuppositions, we want language to always be like precise and completely like explanatory and, or at least we assume that when it's working its best, it's like that. But I, I do think, so I do think it's sufficient. I, I, and in part because I think, I believe in revelation, that God 
speaks to his creatures in ways that they can understand. But I don't know if that gives us like everything. Um, does that answer sort of what you're yeah, going I think, for? I think it does. What I had in mind was something similar to um, Thomas Aquinas at the end of his life after he'd written all these sumos and tried to rationally exposit all yeah. of theology. And yeah. good, as a mystical experience in which he says he meets God, and speaking to mm. one of the Dominican brothers, he says, all that I have written, all that I have done is like shaft in the wind. Yeah. Compared to that direct knowledge of God that he could never describe. Yeah. So I, I'm kind of curious if it could be the only way we could understand it is this direct experience revelation from God and we can't rationalize it. Yeah. Well, if it's that, I don't want to make it an either or, like completely. Um, that And... Um, uh, and in some ways, because, um, you know, like I, so like when I say like I believe in revelation, I primarily mean like the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And like first John says, like we touched and saw. And, and then I, I do believe scripture is a revelation of that revelation. It's a recounting of like Jesus coming, uh, in the flesh. So somehow there's a way that we can encounter God. Like, like the apostles and, and Paul. And I mean, even in the Old Testament, like Isaiah in the temple, um, have this encounter with God and communicate it in a way that others can make sense of it. Cause sometimes there's a way I, I, I'm not opposed to all forms of like mystical encounter or whatever, but there's a way where if it becomes just if it becomes impossible to communicate any bit of it to someone else, like it, it becomes, um, uh, I just become, I become suspicious of it. I think that, um, uh, yeah. Were you going to say something to that, Sarah or Ben? I just saw your hands. Well, I, you know, I'm speculating here, but I would also want there to be space to say maybe all of that work that Thomas did actually created a capacity in him to have the encounter that he did. And so like you know, it's like this is I think this is the nature of artistic and creative inspiration. It's like it it strikes people who are at work. (laughs) It doesn't like if people who have discipline themselves to a, a trade or a craft or like have gained skill and have capacity for it. So yeah. I think that's a really like that really affirms the goal, right? Like that's that takes it out of yeah. that competitive framework. Yeah. At least before that encounter, I know Thomas works with a like uh, he he speaks about our the language we use and so this is definitely like way above my pay grade, like medieval philosophy is not my, like, my thing. Um, but he says that we can, like, there's like two ways to fall off the roof that actually kind of mirror, um, like this setup right here. And one, we can use, um, uh, what is it? It's one is called like equivocal language, uh, where basically there's nothing there's nothing we can say about God because he's so transcendent, because he's so other. Like, because he's not a creature. He doesn't, we, how do we ever, everything we say about him will inevitably become inadequate. And then he's like, well, that doesn't work because 
um, God has spoken to us and given something to talk about. And then he says the other side uh, would be this, which is univocal language. And univocal is just like with one voice. So God's a being just like I'm a being. So when I say God is love, it's the exact same thing as the love that I, I feel towards someone. He's like, well, that can't be right either because it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, go to transcendence. So he posits in the middle. And again, again, this was not, the either or thing is not what we want. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I can get it to keep doing that. Um, but it's, but he talks about analogical language that there's, a, there's, Something that, like, it speaks truly. Like, an analogy tells us something that's very important. It's not just an, it, but it also has space for, like, but it's not the whole, the whole thing. So I know Thomas wanted, wanted to see our language as, as having that, that we, we are, I, but he was more of like, let's be, this is what I gather. I have, I've read almost no Thomas Aquinas, it's just people talking about him. Um, like let's be bold. Like let's let's speak about something that is unspeakable because the unspeakable has spoken. <laughs> you know, like because God has given us things and shown us who He is. And I I know I'm giving you a long answer, but it's I do think it's a wonderful question. Mm-hmm. It has. It also makes me that story of Thomas makes me think of in C.S. Lewis's letters to Malcolm, which are a, a book on prayer. He says there's only, um, actually, if you read Lewis, he sort of riffs on this idea in other places too. But he says there's only one prayer that God will never answer, and it's encore. Uh, and he says all of time and eternity is not enough for him to express himself fully once, uh, because he's beyond it. So he can't do it a second time. So there's always, there's always more, which just makes me think of what, um, uh, of what Aquinas said, uh, and Lewis said that not in towards the end of his life, but part way, and wanted to sort of like let's keep going. Um, Marty has her hand up. I don't know if she has something, and so does yeah. Ben. Maybe you could just if you, yeah, say just go for it. Yeah. Okay, I was just thinking of um, the Apostle Paul um, describing himself as being taken up in the third heaven. Oh yeah. Obviously, experience some very mystical thing, and yet. He made such a point of not, you know, say, I don't even want to talk about this. He didn't even identify himself. Yeah, that's he, right. Most that's people, right. And everybody agrees that it was him, but he doesn't, he doesn't even say it was him. I knew a man. He didn't really want to talk about it. Um, uh, yet, yet there was something that was very, this mystical experience, and yet he was so, um, his teaching was so much against Gnosticism. Which, which was, a, which was, there was a, a movement in the early church that developed even more after the New Testament period, but people just glorying that they're the special Christians. They're the yeah. special Christian who has a special knowledge of God, who has special mystical experiences, and Paul was so against that. Yeah. He, he was so clear in his, in his teaching of all the kind of stuff that you've been saying tonight. Um, to guard against making make, making the wrong implications, taking the wrong implications from a, a mystical experience that that you might have. And we yeah. we were pri- privileged when Dick was at Westminster Seminary to take a sit in. I sat in a course that was taken from Martin Lloyd Jones. He was an amazing, wonderful 
Scottish or British preacher? Welsh. 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 Yikes. Yeah. We'll cut that from the uh, yeah, yeah. We'll edit that out. Yeah. Yeah, but um, I was going to say something wonderful about what he told us. I'm not going to finish your thoughts. Yeah. Yeah, it seems to me this is wonderful. As you've given a number of them, uh, examples of the sovereignty of God and human responsibility working together with no apologies. Yeah. So you're, I'm sorry, you, I, uh, I violated your sense of reason, put these two together, but he didn't say that. He just said it. And, yeah. Because for him, he's at peace yeah. with the sovereignty of God and, and being not zero sum. Yeah. And so yeah. I love that. You, you, you begin at that. The other thing, though, is sometimes I think he's saying, you will not go there and know it. You shouldn't spend a lot of your time trying to work out how this happens. Mm -hmm. What are the mechanics by which this happens? Mm -hmm. Like, who are you, Clay, to talk back to the pot? That's where you, mm -hmm. what you get when you try and push on exactly where mm -hmm. you come from, who they yeah. you, know, you, you try and get into the mechanics of how yeah. the two things work together. And I, I think he's saying, uh, don't waste your time on this. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, you're, you're, a, you're violating your creature status yeah. to think you can get there to, to, to crack the code. I, I rather suspect that even in our final state, we won't understand. Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, it's not a limitation to this. I think it's a creaturely limitation. But I, there's still going to be creatures there. Yeah. Uh, and he is the creator. Yeah. It's all, it, it, that, that point is always brought to you're just a creature. You're just clay. Yeah. 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 I remember my Martin Luther. Oh, yeah, please, please. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things he said in that in one of the lectures that we heard in is that he described that the, play, the place in Romans, I think, somewhere, I think it's Romans, where Paul talks about the love of God poured out in your heart. Yeah. And mm -hmm. he, said, he just said, there are times when you may just be in the, in the middle of your normal life serving mm -hmm. God, doing your medical research or cleaning your house or whatever when you just it's like he described that as like a father walking along the road with his son and suddenly just picking up his son and giving him a big hug mm. he said there are times when God does that and we can't program it but when we may have that kind of experience yeah. being embraced by the love of God and, and then God puts us down again and we carry on and your work. <laughs> yeah, I will, I will get to you guys, I promise. That just reminded me of just a thing that um, I listen. So there's a, a medieval, and she's often called a mystic, um, and she's written a lot, Catherine of Siena. Mm -hmm. And there's this a famous statue of her in rapture in this like mystical state. And uh, I heard Rowan Williams, who is a, a, a theologian of whatever pedigree, and he, a lecture on her. And his point was like, she only said that happened for about five minutes in her life. And so if when she gets to heaven, the first person she wants to find is the sculpture who made that sculptor to be like, listen, you have given me a reputation I didn't ask for. Uh, this was not the thing that I actually spent lots of pages writing. Like you, anyway, so yeah. But anyway, go ahead, Ben, and then Josiah after. I was gonna say just back to this question here. Like, I think there's, I'm not a scholar of Greek or anything like that, but I know that Paul uses the word that's translated mystery in different places. 
Um, one of the places I believe is talking about the mystery that was God's plan to create one people out of Jews and Gentiles. So it's, yeah, it's, it's something that was yeah. covered up mm-hmm. and was not known. Yeah. It was a mystery. But then it was uncovered. It was revealed. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. this you didn't know this. This is what I was up to, but here it is. This mm-hmm. was the plan. And it's like, boom, it's no longer a mystery. Um, but then there's other things, and this isn't necessarily how Paul uses the word, but but the question is, are, are there are the eternal mysteries yeah. <laughs> that will remain mysterious, um, not because they're just a little too complicated for us to crack, like quant- quantitatively, yeah, 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 yeah. It, but it's qualitatively of a different order. Mm-hmm. And... For instance, like what you were saying, like, like I don't know if even in the new heaven and the new earth we will be able yeah. to fully understand and rationalize how how Jesus Christ was fully man and fully God. <laughs> like how how and in in, in more liturgical traditions like the Catholic Church, they refer to that, that's the mystery, the incarnation, yeah. the mystery that you don't yeah. try to clear up. Yeah. It's like in Chesterton yeah. talks about that, like you you hold that mystery as the center of your faith, and it actually sheds light on everything else. Yeah. It, it, if you try to explain that, you break your head and you go insane. <laughs> but if you allow it to be a mystery, it sheds light on everything else. And it, it's, it's the life of our faith. And, and so it's not like a dead end. Mm-hmm. We think, usually we think of mysteries as like it's a dead end, as an end of all knowledge. Nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, we're stuck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But rather, it's a living thing that's a source of worship and wonder and forever. Yeah. It's not just a mystery to be solved, but one to wonder at, yeah. to delight yeah. in. Yeah. To protect, to, to protect. Before going to Josiah, did you have your hand up again, Walker? Just before, in case you want to add to yours before. Yeah, it's just going to be a question for you. It just came to mind when you were mentioning that, especially with all the discussion of um, mysticism in the faith, that mysteries is also a term that was used back in the Greek and the Roman world to refer to the mystical practices of you know the various different groups that were doing such things back then. The Delphic mysteries, the Eleusinian mysteries, etc. Do you think that, I, I know you mentioned you're not a Greek scholar, but do you think there might be some, uh, do you think Paul may have been trying to express himself with regard to that at all with this, your second example specifically? I, I have no idea, but I don't think it's the same sort of thing, because no. th- those are all exclusive mysteries. You're, you're part of this cultic practice, yeah. or you're part of a Gnostic, a Gnostic tradition, mm-hmm. and it's you alone have the vision into this mystery, and it's a very elitist thing. Paul is saying, it's the mystery that's available to all of you. It's, 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 it's God becoming a human being. And that's the source of our hope, and everybody alive has access to that. I have not seen years, not heard what has entered into what God has revealed. I have not seen years, not heard what has entered into the heart of man, but God, what God has revealed. I always wonder about that happening. you've been waiting very patiently. So when I first saw your your talk, I was thinking about God's providence, God's purposeful sovereignty mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. over all things. That He didn't just yeah. begin everything, and He doesn't just sustain everything by the word of His power, uh, but um, He actually plans everything that takes place uh, down to the, every detail. Um, the doctrine of providence, right, mm-hmm. uh, and. Uh, so that was my starting point, and then I was I was thinking about like, uh, you know, why would we think that humans can cancel out something God is doing if God is sovereign and humans are not? Uh, but humans are unique. 
like you talked about at the beginning, that humans have uh, moral responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, it's like uh, there's a meaningful, real choice that we have in, in things, mm-hmm. but uh, we might think that the only way to have a real choice is if God is totally uninvolved, yeah. you know, that he never interferes, that he never influences us in any way, that that's the only real choice we can have, but that's just not how the Bible would portray it. Um, and then I was I was also going to comment that um, sometimes there's this phrase, the secret operations. So in God's sovereign, providential working of, of the universe, a lot of things we can see and observe easily what what's happening in the world, but other things are secret. I mean, I even think of um, the atoning work of Christ on the cross. If you're looking at Jesus dying on the cross, you don't see, uh, you know, some kind of atonement that is paying for people's sins. You just see a man on a cross. Uh, hmm. So, I mean, that that's one of many examples of yeah. something that uh, God is secretly doing... Uh, that, um, yeah, that, like, it, I mean, in terms of salvation, it's often talked about that um, God would draw people by the Holy Spirit, uh, and yet we can't perceive it. We can't use any instrument to detect it, uh, you know. So the secret operations of God are a part of that. I really like what you just said about when you look at the cross and you don't see atonement. <laughs> You see someone, you see someone being humiliated and killed. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I'm not familiar with that term, uh, or like in um, in theology or secret operation. That's that's what you said. Oh, secret operation. Yeah, Sorry. it relates to like more of a Calvinist position. Yeah, salvation. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think, yeah, I want to, um, like, um, I think, like I've said, but I. I want to be able to talk and and think well about how the Bible speaks both about God's providential movement of history, but then also just yeah human moral responsibility, and that there there is so much um, of human in, engagement in their own life, and certain they come from different different places, but there's certain theological streams that tend to present God and humans in a way that either just like basically give humans a pass, you know, like they don't really have to do anything. Um, it's not, nothing's up to them. And then, yeah, other ones that, um, uh, really just have got, it feels like God's not even really like functionally on the ground part of how people live their lives or, or, or go about doing things. So mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Matt. Ben just reminded me of a quote in Orthodoxy where Chesterton says, uh, like, the materialist tries to get the heavens into his head, and the poet tries to get his head into the heavens. Mm-hmm. And it is the materialist's head who splits open, or something, something mm-hmm. to that nature. Yeah, that, yeah especially yeah, with that last bit, that sounds like, <laughs> like, sounds like Chesterton. Yeah, Marta. That's really good. Um, and I actually remember reading, I read that book for the first time in December of 2020. Mm. And I remember reading that chapter when there was a COVID outbreak of 
space, so like he almost had vaccines, but not quite yet. Um, and I think over half of her patients died in that space, like mm-hmm. two or three weeks. Mm-hmm. And I remember like we were praying so hard for God to keep her safe and also like waiting for the vaccine. Like, mm-hmm. like, like, yeah. like finish the testing, like yeah. spit them out. And I remember reading that chapter and then calling my brother and just talking about the idea of God working with us, yeah. right, to trust it, like, in these kind of, like, health, you know, in, like, yeah. things like clean water, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Hand hygiene. Yeah. And anyway, so, so I was remembering that, I was remembering the conversation we had, which brings me to a question, which is this kind of idea of, like, it's either or, or zero sum. When you were researching this and thinking about it, I wonder, do you have a sense that that's changed over time? Like, have we gotten more into this idea of zero sum? Because when I read stuff, like, way back, mm-hmm. like, cholera epidemics and the 1840s yeah. and things, they often talk about it with, like, they're doing, they're working on clean water. And yeah. as scientists, I mean, I'm mean, talking about reading, like, city reports, right? Mm. But they also often use religious language. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and I'm wondering, I don't know, I'm, I'm not sure if that's just the way they I mean, yeah. people tended to talk using more yeah. language. Yeah. Or if maybe things have changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Do you have any, did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. Catherine Tanner um, uh, says this is sort of like post-Reformation, post-Enlightenment. This mm-hmm. was like not something that was, so prior to that, it just was, like Tish says in her book, sort of un- Sort of like no one would have ever thought something like that, um, but that um, yeah, that there were un, un, um, unintended consequences to sort of like changes and changes in thought. She it gets it gets yeah, it, I I mean it gets contested on who did what for was it the 12th century and the introduction of. You know, nature as a category was it actually the 17th century? But whatever it was, it definitely picked up a lot of steam uh, in Europe at, at a time where people were just where God was becoming more distant and deistic and less involved, and we were gaining more mastery over over the created world, whether in the Industrial Revolution or um, like scientific discovery. So it does feel like it, it there was something. It's I, I don't. I don't know if anybody knows exactly when, but um, just as a, I was just going to say, just as a word about, I just I, I really just found this book really helpful. And I that Marta also just mentioned that she read, and um, it's I've I've read a bunch of like kind of heavy. I was going to read a section from this Catherine Tanner book. A, a, because you know, like when people talk, well, maybe no one knows it. When people talk about like Judith Butler and like yeah. like critical theory, they always just read a paragraph to show you how incomprehensible yeah. it often is. Sometimes she has felt like that. We were just like, what? Like, are you? Um, but it was like you can still get where it's kind of going, even if you get lost in the woods. And I was just amazed at how Tish's book yeah. distills yeah. stuff. And it's like so, it's like page turning and it pulls at your heartstrings and it's theologically rich. So I just wanna, I keep pushing this book and buying it for people. But anyway, I'm glad to hear that it came at a, at a, yeah, quite a timely moment for, for you. Yeah, and then I was thinking about, um, 
and so, my, my brother and his fiancés who are researchers, I think that they like reference that chapter often. They're like, it's so good. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. Yeah. So what are those books again? Oh, this book, it's just called Prayer in the Night. That's the only one that That's you... Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. i got to read that, Tom. No, I, I think you really like it, Kathy. To be honest, I think you really like it. I think it's... She's a... Yeah, she's... She's... she's yeah. Well, one thing I just wanted to say before, it, it yeah. seems to me this whole conversation... I, the verse, again, that was read... Work out your salvation with yeah. fear and trembling, for it is God who worketh in you. Those, those Amen. Two, yeah. they, they're put together, and yeah. like Dick said, unapologetically. Yeah. Yeah. I think that could be a really good note, uh, or maybe, no, Marty. This is a very final little story. Um, this is just a counter Pinker's view um, modern medicine versus God. Um, I had major spine surgery a year ago, and um, I had my one-year appointment a couple weeks ago, saw the surgeon who changed my life, basically, because of incredible pain from the scoliosis, 12-inch scar in my back. Um, and I have, I think I probably at some point said to him, I thank God for you mm-hmm. <laughs> and all the work you've done to be able to do this. And, and on this appointment, the one-year appointment, I just said, thank you for changing my life. Can I give you a hug? Mm. <laughs> I did ask permission because he wasn't a huggy sort of person. <laughs> anyway, I gave him a quick hug and just said, thank you for changing my life. And I, at the same time, I thank God. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. Oh. oh, I missed your hand. I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll just have to be more obnoxious next time. Yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And that probably also for a lot of us the challenge is not how in the grand scheme of things does human effort and yeah. divine control work. It is here is the thing that is in front of me right now yeah. Yeah. that I do not understand. Yeah. Do I try something? Do I sit and wait? Mm-hmm. What now? Yeah. And I don't have an answer for that, and I don't think any of us have an answer for that. But I think it's the very real situations that are why we get so hung up on this. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, but I mean, I will say, like, I, I don't, I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying. Um, but I, um, I have been with enough people who have said, I don't, I can't, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do. And they stay in a place of, I don't know what to do, and they don't, they don't. They don't do anything, and things. Um, and so I. I want to encourage um, to use like Schaefer's term, like like active passivity as much as as possible for people to find ways to to pray and to work to to trust God and to take steps and even if. And so, but I can't, I can't, and part of why I wanted, I mean, part of the reason is, I mean, it's a lecture, it's not like a, like a pastoral counseling session, so I, do, I don't want to try to answer particular ones for folks, because I don't, um, cause I, you know, I mean, I, I usually don't know, uh, either, but 
I don't know. I also just want to help us be able to have something. Um, I know I need something to help me both engage in my own life and also not despair because my life, the engagement I have in my life isn't leading to the exact ends that I want. So something that keeps helps me to hope and trust and also act. So, yeah. You guys, do you want to say more of that? Or Mary Frances, do you want to say? Or? Yeah, I'm just going to comment on that. Is I, I hadn't really thought about this before, but her comment just made me think of how this is connected to how we particularly perceive the will of God mm-hmm. and living into the will of God. Yeah. And the idea of, is our idea of the will of God is a very narrow path? Yeah. You know, like stepping stones across a stream. Mm-hmm. And if you just step a little too far to the right, yeah. you're in the water and you're downstream. Yeah. And you're outside the will of God versus is the will of God a circle <laughs> where there's a lot of room to move and God is with us and God is, and, and is it possible to be outside the will of God? Yes. But that, that there actually is maybe for some, maybe more freedom than some of us hmm. have been taught or have been led to believe. Good fear of of not wanting to be away from God or outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But I think maybe having a a clearer awareness of of where we sit with that, what we've been taught, or the Christian tradition that we've come from, how how has that been presented to us? Are those things just tied together? Yeah, um, yeah. Of having that we may have more freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting that to to be because the prom because the promise of God is that He is with us, yeah. mm-hmm. right? um, and that God is regardless of what that step is, that, that, yeah. that God is present with us, that the Holy Spirit is at work um, and has the power to guide and to, and to bring fruit. God, yeah. God, it's not that God can only bring fruit out of one path of action. Yeah. And there's grace if we get it wrong. Yes. Yeah. 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 In the lectures, <laughs> you should listen to. You should buy Tish's book and then buy it for your friends. <laughs> but then, yeah, there's a, a, the English library. The guy Jim Paul has a series of lectures, and he talks he about um, uh, decision making and the will of God. And he says when you look at when the Bible does talk about the will of God, it's it's mostly about what God is, like, big picture of what God is doing. And not about, like, an individual, like, my will for you is that you're a janitor for six years, and then you're going to, like, go to seminary, like, it's, it's, and then get married, and then do this. Like, but that, so there's, like, a big thing that God is bringing, like, creation and history to. And so there's many ways that you can participate in that and join that. And there's also a lot of hope when you... Like, it doesn't all ride on your shoulders when you mess up, <laughs> um, that it keeps going. That's a really good, good word. Yeah, yeah. Um, to, in First Corinthians 2.14, it says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Uh, so it's just a great passage in First Corinthians 2, talking about how God's Spirit gives us understanding 
of tough things like this topic, I think. <clears throat> Yeah. Didn't want to go too far. With it. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's good. Anyone else? Or if, is there any more you want to say, or anyone else? Yeah, the, the floor is still open. Yeah, Peter. I just have to. Uh, something that was told to me at a camp up in New Hampshire, uh, which which I think is somewhat pertinent. Uh, th- there have been some jokes tonight, but uh, <clears throat> the Baptist church caught fire, and the Baptist held a prayer meeting. The Catholic Church caught fire and the Catholics had a mass. The Episcopal Church caught fire and they held a splendid liturgy. And uh, what else? Uh, The Presbyterian Church caught fire and they formed a committee. (laughs) The the Unitarian Church caught fire. What did they do? They called the fire department. <laughs> <laughs> and which sort of says it. <laughs> if I ever do this lecture again, I'm definitely <laughs> including <laughs> that joke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, well, unless going, going. All right, thank you all. Thank you.